100.7 FM WHIN 1010 AM presents Sumner County Spotlight, a weekly public affairs program each Sunday at 10 AM. Sumner County Spotlight, exclusively by FNM Bank. 221 Indian Lake Boulevard in Hendersonville. FNM Bank offers personal banking, business banking, and mortgage loans too. Right here in Hendersonville, FNM Bank is one of the top independent banks in Tennessee. Member FDIC, equal housing lender. MMLS number 518158. Here's your host for Sumner County Spotlights, Tony Richards. Good morning and welcome to Sumner County Spotlight this morning and every Sunday morning right here on WHIN brought to you by FNM Bank at 221 Indian Lake Boulevard and at myfmbank.com and we are delighted to have on the phone with us a local author who's now a national author, Terry Maggart. Terry, good morning. How are you? Good morning. It is a pleasure to be here. I guess we should say international. I mean, I can't. I'm assuming you don't stop <laughs> selling books at the border, right? <laughs> no, I, I like. I get uh, occasionally every month. I get you know eighty or ninety cents from as far away as Malaysia. So it's, it's interesting to see the breakdown of. I, I would like to personally take this opportunity to thank everyone who reads one or two books a month everywhere. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because exactly. Ultimately, that little bit finds its way back to me. Well, Terry, some folks are going to be wondering, why is this uh, author on in Sumner County on WHIN? And the answer is, well, you, uh, you're you a local guy. I, I am. I've been here for 16 years now, and I will live here until I am either forcibly removed or I die. Those are the two choices. So <laughs> right. I well, love it here. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself for those of us like me uh, who aren't aware of you, but you, uh, you're you very visible in our county and uh, and with your career. But why don't we just kind of start with uh, where you're from and how you uh, ended up being where you are today. I uh, Well, I was born in the 60s in South Florida, which made me uh, a rarity because when people would say, where are you from, I'd say Florida, and they'd say, no, really. Yeah. Where are you from? Yeah. I'd say, Florida. I'm an actual native. Um, and then a lot of, and some of my books reflect the uh, a presence in the Adirondack Mountains, and that's where my mom is from. Okay. Um, I went to high school in the Adirondacks, which was, you know, I was Florida Keys, Adirondacks, two of the most beautiful places um, that I could have possibly been. And uh, But I've been here in this general area since 96. I see. And I love it. Uh, so and, and what brought married, you to, I have a son and what brought you to Portland which I think you said is where you're where you're living yeah I met well I met my wife okay um, the simplest reason is that you have to have a great reason to, to move and Missy was that reason so. mm-hmm. <laughs> and how long have you and Missy been you and Missy <laughs> we uh, fish we've been married 13 years now mm-hmm. and um, I, I'm always a little bit astonished when I fill out paperwork and I realize I've lived this long in one place because um, my dad was a troubleshooter with the bell system, and we moved quite a bit. And um, this is a kind of stability I've not known. Well, there and, you go. Uh, I think it certainly it's it, Portland's fantastic. Sumner is great. You know, Sumner um, County has a way of uh, a way of doing that to people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I knew as soon as I started growing good tomatoes that I was never going to leave. There you go. Attaboy. Um, so, you know, you're an author now. Was that always your intention when you were young, or was that just something you were always pretty good at? Or I Well, uh, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, and physics and chemistry were out of the question because I'm allergic to math. So, mm-hmm. uh, I, And I was a, a, a right I mean, A right-brained fellow. <laughs> I, I'm left-handed, even so. It fits, there you go. I, I I fit the description. Um, but I, 
was a, ch a true child of the science fiction era, and I cut my teeth on sci-fi and fantasy uh, mm -hmm. from the age of like seven. And I didn't get serious. I wrote, but I didn't get serious until I was 44 years old. Um, but I will say that as I've gotten into the publishing world, a lot of the people that I meet sort of bloomed in their 30s and 40s. It's this, I think you get full of stories, uh -huh. and that's when you are capable of telling better stories. Yeah, you just need to get them out. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. So up until you were in that 44-ish range, uh, where did your career path take you? Uh, roofing. Uh, I, I did four hard years at Blockbuster Video. Mm -hmm. um, I am a veteran of Blockbuster Video. I tell, we, I, I started and, you know, kids are like, what's Blockbuster Video? Right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you, you haven't survived retail until you've done a Friday night at Blockbuster. Oh, and, boy. And, um, oh, yeah. And, uh, and then I was, and I was raised more or less in the restaurant industry. When my grandfather got back from World War II, he, he was in France and Germany. He came back and, um, our family story is lovely because it's very Americana, but he built a small restaurant called Ted and Peg's Pie Stand in mm -hmm. Rome, New York. And they expanded to three locations. And so I always was very comfortable with the restaurant industry. I thought pie was for breakfast. And um, yeah. consequently, when I was in my late 20s, I bought my first restaurant. And wow. so I was a restaurant guy. Gutsy move. Yeah. A little bit nerve-wracking, writing that check, um, but uh, a good move. And it's most of the stuff that I've done that made me nervous turned out to be a good decision. Right. Although although tough sometimes, but worth it. Yeah. Yes. Uh, there's um, I, If you're familiar with the concept of imposter syndrome, you occasionally experience that when you're taking over any kind of leadership role. Mm -hmm. um, and I've three or four times in my life I've had it happen, and I've thought, okay, how did I get here? <laughs> and being an author is one of them. Being a college professor was another, and certainly owning my own restaurant where people were depending on you to pay them. So you, uh, so you were in the restaurant business for a little while, and then, and then what after that? Well, I... My wife convinced me, she said, I had been out of school for 14 years, and I thought the natural progression of life was that I wanted to go back and, and complete school and pick up a master's and maybe teach, and uh, and I definitely wanted to write. Mm -hmm. And so in order, sort of as a as a plan, as much as you can plan, um, I did that. And the first job I applied for was Ball State, and I got it. Oh, cool. And, and what did uh, you uh, what did you teach there? History. Um, my field is military history. Uh, my undergrad is religion, and there's an incredible overlap between the, t the two. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I was fascinated by it. I've always been fascinated by it. And I, I think certainly my family history, my grandfather fighting in World War II, had some um, a source of interest for me that just kept blooming. Mm -hmm. um, and here, actually, it's a relationship a fascination with history that I don't think will ever end for me. Well, I would imagine, and we can get into this later, but I would imagine these different experiences, roofer, restaurant, teacher, you know, this is all what helps sort of develop authors, isn't it? Life in general? I, Yeah, I, yes. Uh, it is very unusual to, I'm a lot different than I, I'll be 52 in September. Mm -hmm. I'm a lot different than I was when I was 25. When I was 25, I was not interesting. I was not experienced and i think that authors and artists 
can be very passionate, but skill and depth for me, um, and I don't classify myself as an artist. I'm a mechanic. I say that to anyone who will listen. Mm -hmm. I've always thought of myself as a mechanic. Um, I think you get better at it, and you can assemble things in a manner based on your own experiences that has a lot of texture and nuance and interest. And the more you, the more interesting things you do, the more, the more touching your stories become. Right. Like more people can relate to them. Right, exactly. Even if it's science fiction or fantasy. I mean, it could yeah. be something as simple as in broadcasting, you know, as over the years, and I've coached air talent before, I'm like, get descriptive on what you're talking about. You know, we're, we oh, pe- yeah. people see in pictures, they read in pictures, they they listen in pictures. You know, uh, they don't just see in pictures, they listen and they hear things in pictures. And even if you're doing, you know, a traffic report, you know, give some landmarks. Is by the McDonald's over at the corner of blah, 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 blah. Not just, um, you know, there was an accident on this road, you know. So I think I would imagine, you know, authors do the same thing. You think about the whole sort of scene and what you're trying to describe. Yeah, there's, there's two, yes, there's two schools of thought on that, that, you know, I'm paraphrasing, Anton Chekhov said, uh, don't tell me about the light, show me moonlight on broken glass. Oh, yeah, and very that, cool. And I think it's just a, yes. And then the, the opposite of that, not necessarily anathema to it, but certainly a different stylistic choice is Hemingway. Mm-hmm. Who, who wrote in this spare, muscular prose. Mm-hmm. And he believed that with an economy of words that punched above their weight, you could tell a, a really visceral story. And he did it with six words. He said, for sale, baby shoes, never worn. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, is... That means you can tell a complete story with a lot of emotion um, in fewer words, but the words have to be the right ones. And I think somewhere between those two writers is yeah. where the sweet spot where you want to land. Right. And you can go back and forth. I mean, there's no rules. Oh, yeah. uh, it's only if the receiver finds what you're saying interesting. I was told once that it's not how you transmit the words, it's how they're received. Oh, I promise you I won't steal that, but I just did. Oh, um, yes, yeah. <laughs> that's absolutely true. Almost in, in any conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, well, this is, uh, you know, we're already, up... we're, we're kind of already getting into the nuts and bolts of stuff in theory, and it's, and it's really <laughs> interesting. But I do want to go uh, a little bit uh, longer on your career path because, you know, you've, you've done these, these uh, different things in life. Were you always from the beginning, though, interested in writing? Um, not professionally. Or were you just this creative I, I mean, kid I, that needed an outlet and wanted to scratch that itch? Or, Well, I was going to be an oil painter, which was... My dad was a, a telephone man. He mm-hmm. was a phone man. He came back from overseas uh, in the Navy, and uh, he went to work for the Bell System in 1967, and he was a very practical, hands-on, hard-working guy. And when I told him I wanted to be an oil painter, oh, yeah. uh, I think he was... I mean, it was... <laughs> you can uh, it, pack it, your I stuff mean, and well, move out right now, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and the and of course you know the the level of skill required to be a professional artist is breathtaking. So um, I I wanted it, but I don't. One of the things that I tell people is that writing is work, just like what you do. Mm-hmm. It's work. Yeah. It's a skill that is also work. Um, and it's sometimes people want to talk about writing without doing the actual work. 
Oh, and man, I I, I've tried it a little. I'm not going to lie. Um, but being a right-brainer like you are, I'm sort of all over the place. And I'll dive into it, and I'll work on a chapter, and then I'll come back going, you know, where, where was I going? <laughs> yeah, that's, um, well, that, I will say that I, I think one of the most fatuous things I could ever do would be to tell somebody how they should write. Mm-hmm. Because we're, we're all wired differently. For me... I see an entire arc from beginning to end, and I know where I'm going. Wow. Um, some people some people re- re- require chapter by chapter. Some people think, I have a friend of mine who thinks in three-book trilogies. Oh, my goodness. Well, how do you, how yeah. you, you know, how do you take it from point A to point B? Because, um, not to get in the nuts and bolts too much here, but we can give us, you know, your experience and your overview for those new young writers out there that are, uh, listening for the first time. This is the first time we've had an author on the air, and I think this is a real opportunity, you know, as we get older, to share those things that, you know, if if you can help somebody avoid a pothole or two as they're thinking about writing or thinking about not writing because they're afraid, um, what would you what would you say? Well, don't be afraid. For, uh, all anyone can do is say, and this is, my career has been defined by asking better people than me to work with me. And, and, and I will say, and stru- from a structural standpoint for a young writer, I tell them, um, let, let's see, E.L. Dr. Rowe said, car lights don't shine very far, but you can get home that way. And I think that that applies to fiction writing because as long as you know the end scene and the end goal, like I, I came up with a, uh, Livy will be a queen. I came up with that and I wrote three books based on that one sentence wow. because I knew exactly what was going to happen with her and everything would be predicated on that shift in her, in this massive adventure that takes, you know, 270,000 words. But with that being said, some people like to map it out in a very detailed outline. Right. That's great too. Um, it depends on your comfort level, but I will say that writing is a muscle and it, it atrophies if you don't use it. Mm-hmm. And it gets more intense and productive if you do use it. That is so interesting. It's a great way to put it. We're talking with Terry Maggart, uh, author here in uh, on Sumner County Spotlight. We're up against our first break, Terry. We're going to come back in just a minute and talk a little bit more about... Uh, we'll, we'll start with the uh, beginning of your, your writing career and uh, what your first books were, and we'll kind of dive into your uh, career here in just a moment. Sound good? Sounds great. Thank okay, you. we're going to come back with more of Sumner County Spotlight brought to you by FM Bank at myfmbank.com and 221 Indian Lake Boulevard in Hendersonville right after these messages. FM Bank presents Sumner County Spotlights. Since 1906, FM Bank has been serving Middle Tennessee with first class products and services. Visit them today at 221 Indian Lake Boulevard in Hendersonville or myfmbank.com. Welcome back to Sumner County Spotlight this Sunday morning. We are. Uh, Lucky to have an author named uh, Terry Maggart on the show with us this morning. Uh, brought to you by FNM Bank uh, at myfmbank.com. Terry uh, Terry Maggart, a Portland resident, is a uh, fiction writer. And Terry, so you didn't said you didn't really get serious into uh, writing until you were forty four. Is that what you said? Yeah, yeah. Late in life, a, a late bloomer. Okay, so. <laughs> Tell us about the first time you actually sat down and had the discipline to write this book, and and what was it that made it happen? I, I think 
when my I, I took night shift, uh, I don't sleep a lot. I'll be candid. I'm both a morning person and a night person, so I just don't sleep a lot. But when our son was quite young, I said, I'll take night shift. And um, more or less typing with one hand, I wrote a little short horror story. And I didn't intend it to be horror, but um, it was. I sent it to a Nashville editor, mm-hmm. and she rejected it. And she said, it feels like the beginning to a novel. And I realized she was right. So I took it back, and it was only maybe 3,000 words. And I took it back, and I wrote 77,000 words, more or less typing with one hand. Oh, my while God. My son, and, um, and I realized uh, that I could write quickly, and I had plenty of stories in, in the sense that I think a lot of writers, if you talk to them, will all say they'll die before they run out of books. Right. Um, well, what about the so much, what so about the ideas. what about the discipline of actually doing it? Because it you you have to have the discipline to sit down and uh, and get this on paper. That's an okay. That's an optimistic view of it. Uh, some could say just sheer stubbornness. Um, uh-huh. But um, discipline it indicates that you have a completely formed idea. If you can see, see this entire novel, mm-hmm. um, and so you know a lot of people. One of the things I'm sure you know from working in radio, um, any any quasi-creative field that you're in, if you say, hey, I'm a writer, the first thing that somebody tells you is, you know, I got an idea for a book. Yeah, right, exactly. And, and uh, I can't remember who said it, but, you know, a professional writer is just an amateur who didn't quit. And mm-hmm. that indicates you're either just bullheaded or... You've got a lot to say, and so for me, I, I I write fairly quickly, and I think I wrote five novels in a year and a half. Oh my lord! Um, yeah, I, I was just off to the races. Um, and but you was, also have to earn realized, a living, and you have a family. Um, so how yeah, do you how do you do the two cross? And how, how does that work? There's a lot. I I don't know. I don't really remember. I mean, I know it's recent history. It's just seven years ago, but. I don't remember ever being pressed for time. Um, I just remember I would write in vignettes, like scenes I see. that were fully realized, mm-hmm. and uh, it sort of flowed. And I'm not sure that, and I do, and I will be very candid. I don't have writer's block ever. Wow, um, that's very I cool. I think writer's block. Knock on wood. Yeah, a lot of it's real. Yeah, it's real, but not for me because I keep more than one project going at once. I generally have three to five projects at all times. Uh, I see. That makes sense. So are, are you the kind of author that typically would write in order? Or what if, uh, you know, us right-brainers, we can be a little bit all over the place. How do you organize that? Or do you, like you said, I'm going to do this section. I'll see if it fits with the rest of the story. Sure. Yeah. If you, well, one of the things is if you have a really stellar piece of dialogue, or if you have a, I mean, I've built an entire scene around one line. Um, so, um, and, and I think in a linear sense, you can put them together um, later. I would rather get good words down on paper, so to speak, first, rather than thinking about it. I see. Um, it, and uh, I've, I've written the ending. Like I wrote, uh, I think, a 14,000-word ending to a novel. And I, I knew that that was what I wanted to happen. And I said, now I go back to the beginning. <laughs> I got you. So, yeah. Um, that makes some sense. Your so tell us about your first book and, and what was it that made it happen? So you sent it in. It was rejected. Then you, you put some meat on the bone. Yeah. Um, well, the, the two things were simultaneously happening. And I think this happened for a lot of writers. Um, 
about the year 2008 is when independent publishing became so much more viable. But a lot of people realized that they didn't need an agent in New York right. to act as a gatekeeper for their creative energy. And good um, is good, and you, no so matter who's looking it at is. it, I'm assuming. It is. Yep. It, it, and nobody will tell you more than readers. Readers tell you exactly what they think. I see. They have the immediacy of social media. The, the power of social media, which is a double-edged sword, but mm -hmm. it's a way that I can connect with people immediately and hear, am I doing my job well? Gotcha. Um, and so my first few books were, it was an idea I had that was steeped in history and sort of a paranormal fantasy with um, maybe even tinged with horror because it was centered around Elizabeth Bathory, who was a true villain in history. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, and I ended up writing five novels before I knew it. <laughs> so, Do you think that the rejection at the beginning was was a, a learning thing, a, a very very good thing? Do you think you'd be where you are if she wouldn't have said, you know, this seems more like a novel? That seems like pretty good advice. It was. It's critical. It's a keystone moment um, because one of the other things is you need somebody to tell you you're not that good mm -hmm. because it, it's fairly arrogant to write something and think someone will give you money for it. That's right. a little bit of a leap of faith on, um, and I, I think many creatives feel that way, where you say, well, I don't know, is this, because everybody wants to be a writer or everybody writes, what is going to separate me from everybody else? And there's that gray area that you operate in between uncertainty and confidence. Does it still work that way in the publishing world where people expect to get paid first? But doesn't that really only happen with big names anymore? Yeah, it's, well, a really terrifying thing that I saw was, I'll give you an example. I went to a conference in Las Vegas last year called 20 Books, and it's a invitation-only kind of a thing. And um, the people that were out there, uh, there were about 1,200 people there, and about 100 of us were, and I want to make sure that I say this, um, this is not bragging, this just tells you the appalling state of publishing. Okay. Most authors make less than $3,000 a year. Yeah. So what the heck? A, a very yeah. thin veneer of people earn you know, astronomical amounts of money. Is a publishing now, business out, uh, a dying business then? It's changing. The hmm. model is 160 years old, and I don't know anything that has lasted 160 years. Yeah, even, um, uh, even newspapers model. aren't, aren't you know, really... Sure. Yeah. Sure. So it's, you know, you'll see a lot more truly successful authors right now announce that they're hybrid authors where they're partially independent and they'll sign with a, a publishing house um, because it gives you creative control and an immediacy that you don't experience with the big five publishers. I mean, being a book publisher is kind of like being a concert promoter. You talk about risky, and I don't know if people are willing to you yeah. know, take that kind of risk anymore. Yes. It's not only that, but you're realistically looking at the top 1% of their authors are carrying the entire load. Right, right. Yep. Yep, that In makes sense. That makes sense. Sure. Okay, so you get this first book out. What happens? Nothing. Well, tell <laughs> I, me about the, what's, what's the name of your first, What's the name of your first book? The, the first book was titled The Forest Bull. Okay. And I had this entire idea, and, it, and I sold 17 copies in six months. Boom. There you go, and baby. Know, You're off to the races. Yes. I have arrived. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Um, 
and I remember those days of wondering, you know, you're sitting there. And, but to my credit, I don't know if it just means I'm dumb. I didn't even look at my sales figures past a certain point because I said it has no bearing on whether or not I'm going to keep writing. Well, that's and a good before thing. Before I knew it, I'd written. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't. I just kept writing and kept writing. And then at some vague kind of point down the line, I came up with a concept for the Halfway Witchy series, wrote the first novel, and I knew as soon as I published it, that it was an entirely different thing. Really? Um, and yeah, I just felt it, and I knew it, and immediately it started to get reviews, and people, you know when you don't recognize the names of the people reviewing it, that it's organic, and it's getting out of your control, right. and it's reaching people who want it simply because they like it. And if people found you that way, or stumbled upon you, or however it came to be, once they learned about you and they liked what they read, did they then go back to some of your earlier stuff? Yes, they they did, and and they were very like I have a beta reader team that I call my super readers, mm-hmm. and they're you know we know each other in real life. Like these are people that I travel to the United States, I travel to a lot of events, and I meet them and we have lunch and we talk and they say, you know, I don't think that book four was as good as book five, and here's why. And <laughs> cool. I've got that kind of. It's it's amazing because they all they want it, the independent publishing world is amazing because so many passionate readers all they want is for you to succeed and also all they want is for somebody to give them what they want right and I said man I'm your guy I'm your guy I am because I want to read books I want to I want to write what I want to read yeah so when you when did you know that you could pretty much do this. And not do other stuff. I well, I received a uh, kind. My wife, the Velvet Hammer. I received an ultimatum from her, where she said, in practical terms, you know, if you can make this happen, let's look at the numbers and see if because we have a family and, mm-hmm. and and a life to, and and I'm not a spring chicken. I'm 51. So right. I said okay, but I knew two years ago, um, one of my friends who is in a reader's group out in the Oregon, um, they they enjoyed my books and they reached out to me and one of the uh, readers, Jen, said, hey, have you ever read this guy Jeff Cheney? And I knew, of Je- I knew of Jeff, I knew his stuff, he wrote Space Opera, and she said, he's looking for a co-writer, he mentioned in a group. Jeff and I spoke on the phone, we're both from Florida, um, we both have some similar experiences, we both really grew up reading the same kind of stuff, you know, classic Mm sci-fi. And he said, I'd like to put together a pen name and write novels and see what happens. And he called, so we did, and he called me the day it was released, and he said, take a look at what's happening. And I think we were in the top 100 in all of Amazon. Wow, because I did. I was going to ask you about Cheney, because I see this on some of your books, and I'm like, oh, well, you're clearly working with somebody. Yeah, he's my business part. He's my business partner and my co-writer, and we, you know, our goal was we talked it over very seriously because um, we love books and we love writing. And I said, "Can we write a hundred? And he said, "I think we can write a hundred. Wow. So when you when you when you're going. collaborating, do you go back and forth? Do you talk at the same time? Does he write something, send it to you? You do, you know, kind of a, a frick and frack kind of a thing? Yeah. It, Really, our conversations last less than 90 seconds because we share so much DNA in terms of what we like. Wow. And I think we've developed a kind of shorthand from 
day one where we understand what it is we're doing and we understand what we enjoy. And, um, you know, I, I he, he drags me back from the precipice of using too many words and I drag him away from using too few and the balance really works. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, sometimes you just find those collaborations and they work fantastic. We're talking with Terry Maggart, author, uh, here on WHIN for Sumner County Spotlight. We're up against our second break, Terry. We're going to come right back and uh, talk a little bit more right after these messages here on WHIN Sumner County Spotlight. Good morning. We are glad you could join us today. FNM Bank presents Sumner County Spotlights. Since 1906, FNM Bank has been serving Middle Tennessee with first-class products and services. Visit them today at 221 Indian Lake Boulevard in Hendersonville or myfmbank.com. We're back. Sumner County Spotlight this morning with author Terry Maggart, who uh, writes fiction and uh, a lot of it, it looks like. And like you said, you never really run out of stories to tell, Terry. <laughs> that could be because... I can't keep a job. So well, I could keep be. Filling up with <laughs> we have that in common. Um, so I'm kind of <laughs> scrolling through your website, and I was looking at these. Uh, we we have to talk about these covers. Um, you know, it's it's. I don't want to say publishing and and writing books is a little bit like wine labels, but um, these are gorgeous. Some of these covers. It's. You, I am a. I I maintain that you can't see personality across the room, mm-hmm. and. Um, and so when I, I have certain things in terms of production standards, um, I write as well as I can, and, and I am limited only by my own limitations, but I can hire the absolute best artists possible. And that translates as well into my audiobooks because I was an, an early adopter of audiobooks. Okay. Um, and I, when I was starting out, some people say, well, you really got lucky with the talent. And I said, well, that's one way of looking at it. The other is being persistent with, um, I, I reached out to Julia Whalen who had just done Gone Girl. Mm-hmm. And she was a very, she's a successful actress and a narrator. Right. And she said yes. And, and uh, Gabrielle DeCur said yes. And Rebecca Cook. Isn't it, isn't it amazing Spencer. if you just ask uh, yep. how helpful people are? <laughs> just ask. It's, it's incredible. They, they told me I was mortified to hear that they have downtime. And I said, how can someone with your ability and reputation have downtime? And she said, people are scared to ask me. Yeah. She was the narrator of the year for Audible. And she said, people are sometimes afraid to ask me. And well, thought, you know, you were, a little, is... you were maybe a little ahead of the curve on Audible, or I mean on audiobooks, because they, yeah. weren't, they weren't cool, they weren't the thing. And, you know, smartphones were still figuring all this out. And But sometimes if you just gut it out and you stay with it, if you can peer into the future, which you clearly do, whether it's fantasy or real life, um, you just got to stay with it. And look at what's happening with these yeah. books, with these audiobooks. It's crazy. I'm fascinated by that. I mean, I'm a trained historian, and, and I love the the history of science fascinates me because um, uh, the shifts often occur in very jarring, quick periods. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we're seeing happen is how millennials are consuming media is podcasts, Twitter, and audiobooks. Right, that's but it's, like all, it's always trend. audio, and that's, you know, being in radio, yeah. everybody's, oh, you're in a dying medium, like, you know, newspapers or whatever. Well, not really. Audio is hotter than it's ever been. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and I think thing, uh, we've been, we've been able to adapt, and I know you've done a little radio yourself, so, um, you know, radio is really, really adaptive. It's adaptive, and it's hyper-local. 
Mm-hmm. It's there's a there is something to be said for the simple fact that AM radio exists. Right. I mean, I always tell people if you think that the world is passing you by, consider AM radio because AM radio is strong and still has a pervasive presence in local cultures. Well, and I've and always said, I've always I'm, been of the uh, the fact that look, if somebody can talk on one end of the microphone for free, and somebody can listen to it for free, um, we're not charging you streaming fees at the end of the month. We're not sending you a subscription bill yep. like Sirius XM. You can, I mean, there'll always be a business model for something like that. Seems to me. Yep. I I equate this to I was actually in a theater. This is thirty years ago, probably when Pepsi ran the first ad before a movie in the theater Uh, it was the it was dancing in the streets with with bowie and jagger and bowie i'm a freak for bowie Mm -hmm. and um anyway i remember looking at that and even in my muddled teenage mind i remember thinking this is a seminal change a massive shift in and what's going to happen here and sure enough now you've got eight nine minutes of ads prior to any movie that you've given a tick what 13 to 20 dollars for a ticket yeah and a captive Um, audience Absolutely. So we were talking Absolutely. about technology and how that's changed in the the writing business and what you do. And you like you said you kind of grew up looking at all of the you know I don't know if it was uh, uh, Buck Rogers or all these kind of you know from the very infant <laughs> you know from the very very beginnings of all this kind of sci fi stuff up into you know Dick Tracy talking on his watch. I mean this stuff oh, yeah. is, this stuff is here and it's you know we don't even think twice about it. It's uh, I. I was a child of the late 60s, early 70s in Florida, and there are many pictures of me standing as a little boy watching the Apollo uh, missions go up. Oh, yeah, man. And that, to me, I drank Tang. I was obsessed with the Saturn V rocket. Yep. I was later on obsessed with the SR-71. That, to me, was science fiction. And then I remember at some point in the past eight to ten years of my life realizing I'm actually living science fiction. Yeah. Um, The only... The only difference is we're not on Mars. But other than that, everything else in terms of technology in my daily existence is here. Yeah, it's not just a fantasy. Uh, this is a real phys- physical thing that is now occurring that people never... I, I just wish my old man was here to see uh, how the GPS on my car worked. He'd flip. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My my mother-in-law is in her well into her 70s, and she is on... Um, she's online... And and has a vibrant existence both in real life and online, and she seamlessly transitioned to it, and that fascinates me yeah. because I can only hope that I, I worry a little bit about being that guy screaming at kids to get off my lawn um, <laughs> in a few years, but so, seeing her do it tells me that it's easier than I thought. So as you you know think up these crazy things and you write these amazing fantasies um, and and science fiction things that happen, does the world in which we live now inspire you to think about things that haven't happened that maybe actually could be possible one day? I mean, as crazy Absolutely. as it sounds, I don't care if it's time travel or whatever. I mean, a lot of movies and a lot of money have been made on time travel movies, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. There's no, yes. There's, yeah, I, I think that every writer, if you're, if you're a professional writer and that's what you do for a living, I think that you have a function of your personality that I call the watcher. Mm-hmm. I am, I'm an observer. I, I'm an, it, I'm an extrovert, but I'm a, an observer by nature. And I think that you take all these things in and process them. And then you start looking at the gaps, things that are 
here or are not here, and that can inspire stories. Mm. Um, and I know my best ideas always come from everyday life. Right, right. Any story does, really. Sure. So, uh, sure. but, you know, we talked a little bit about the discipline. So when this occurs to you, because you can't, I'm assuming, as a writer, uh, help when something comes into your head, you know, you have to have the discipline to put it down. Or how many thousands of ideas have you lost because you didn't write it down or you woke up or you didn't wake up and, and write it down or whatever? I got a green note. I've got a 99 cent green notebook. Mm-hmm. I went and got four of them. I filled three of them. I'm currently on my green one. And that's where my series, I've got 30 series ideas developed in this green notebook. And, um, and I, Jeff and I will talk back and forth and I'll say, Hey, uh, up next, this is what I'm thinking. And I'll pitch it to him. And he's like, yeah, let's go with that. And I can't, it can be a phrase. It can be three to five words, but I can, because I use it as a mnemonic tool, I can hang an entire idea on that small phrase. So I write it down because. I don't ever want to live with the regret of a missed opportunity. Right. Um, and, you know, l- like you said, it's not that you're writing down an idea for a book. You you said you've been inspired by one line, helped you write an entire book. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The emo- if you get enough emotional impact in a single bit of dialogue, um, you can build an entire narrative around it. So maybe are there people out there that overthink it? So I'm writing something down or I came up with something and I'm going to write it down. Um, maybe not think about too much about what it is. Is it a book? Is it a song? Is it a lyric? Is it uh, a series of books? Is it a, you know, who is it a, is it a movie? I don't know. Yeah. It, and it, the truth is it doesn't matter as long as you save it. And mm-hmm. as long as it's the, I have written things down that turned into something that I absolutely could not have predicted. But mm-hmm. um, but I wrote them. I got them down, and I saved them. And uh, there is no... It, it's this way with your characters, too. You can have the best of intentions for your characters, and they are going to get away from you. One of them is going to get away from you and become a paramount of, of paramount importance, and one that you thought might be really critical is going to fade and be a second-tier Sort of I got you. Well, it sounds to me, and I don't want to get too far out there, but it sounds like this is when a person, any person, can find out who they really are. And whether you overanalyze it or you let others judge you and it shuts you down and turns that part of your brain off, uh, I wonder what the world would be if everybody did just write it down, not having to know what it meant. <laughs> I can tell from from being a writer and from being a compulsive reader since the age of four, I can tell you what a person's hang-ups are by reading their fiction. Because fiction is where we work out the problems that we have in our lives that we think are insurmountable. And you can tell so much about a person by the antagonist that they write. You can tell your first character realistically is always you. Mm-hmm. When you start writing, right? You know. So, what do I know from my first character? Well, I know I wish I was six three. I'm only six one. I'd, yeah. I'd like to be six three. And I think you know you could dive into that and read all you want into it. But in truth, if I'm being brutally honest, sure, I'd love to be six three. So that's probably why my first character was that height. And we do, we are a filter for our own wants and and needs and flaws. And fiction is an incredible opportunity. It's a vehicle 
and catharsis all in one. That's so interesting. And I, like you, I'm a bit of a history fan. I'm not, not quite clearly as knowledgeable as you, but I do enjoy reading it. I'm kind of a nonfiction guy. So for nonfiction okay. folks or biographies, periodicals, I, I sort of like, you know, shorter the better, but informative, pack as much info as you can. I'm not a voracious reader, but I'm a glancing reader and I, I want to get to the the end. What what about a, a guy like me, or there's a lot of nonfiction readers out there, how can they uh, foray into the fiction world? And what any, you know, because I don't want to oh. say that I'm never going to read it, but I don't even know where to start. You know, I'm not a I'm Harry Potter guy. I mean, I didn't read oh, Harry yeah, Potter yeah. or any of that. Where, where do you, where would you recommend a nonfiction person go to, to read their first fiction book? I was always fascinated by people that wrote within their field of expertise. Um, a good example is uh, if you've ever heard of the writer Tim O'Brien. Um, Tim O'Brien actually makes me physically angry. That's how good a writer he is. Um, <laughs> okay. Like I, I, he's, you know, I read. I remember reading "Going After Cacciato in 1986, and I, I put the book down with utter disgust <laughs> after reading the first page because I knew I was never going to be that good. And, and, you, and you thought, boy, this guy times. can make me that ticked off? What the? Oh, yeah. But he was, he's a Vietnam veteran who writes about uh, Vietnam, and, mm-hmm. but he does so in a manner that is so elegant. And um, so there are certain people, I always like to look at their CV. Like, what did they do? You know, mm-hmm. what, you know like uh, t- Tony Bourdain, you know. Right. If you've never, you, you read Kitchen Confidential, and then you realize the guy's, He's a modern savant in terms, mm. as good as he was in the kitchen and as good as he was on camera, he was better on the printed page. That's so interesting. I've heard that about him before. And uh, yep. I think no matter how the story is told, um, it's worth taking. it. So is it like art? So if I'm cruising along in a book aisle and I see something that catches my eye, everybody says, well, if you like it, get it. It doesn't have to go with everything else. Um, maybe that's just a reason for you to take a peek at it. Absolutely. And we're very visual creatures. You know, it's, mm-hmm. um, I get I get a lot out of the covers. And, of course, I design, you know, I, I'm, I'm part of the process in designing our covers. And we want to reach the people that want to read our books. So a lot of thought has generally gone into that cover. Well, it looks you know? like it. Um, this isn't some Bush League yeah. thing that I've seen. No, no, we're, um, I'm very proud of that. I'm proud to work with people that I consider, we, we hired my artist away from Marvel, to mm-hmm. tell you, who okay. were, you know, we went out and got the best possible people we could. My editor, Jennifer Clark Sell, has been with me for seven years. We have a superb relationship. She understands me at a, at a cellular level mm-hmm. as a writer. Um, and we've developed a kind of shorthand that allows me, she makes me better. You know, it's interesting the way you talk because you're you're what nine plus years into this, and uh, uh, it sounds like you're just kind of at the beginning, really. Yeah, very much. Yep. That's of, of what I, could I be. would never ever want to be complacent. Mm-hmm. I That's, think complacency is when you start to lose your audience and you lose the edge of writing good books. We are talking with uh, Terry Maggart, uh, author, uh, a Portland. 
uh, Tennessee resident, Sumner County resident, and we're glad to have him on the show. Uh, we're getting ready to come up on our last break. We're going to uh, stop here in just a moment. We're going to come back and finish up the program talking to Terry. We'll be right back after these messages here on WHIN with Sumner County Spotlight. FNM Bank presents Sumner County Spotlights. Since 1906, FNM Bank has been serving Middle Tennessee with first-class products and services. Visit them today at 221 Indian Lake Boulevard in Hendersonville or myfmbank.com. Welcome back to Sumner County Spotlight this morning, talking to Terry Maggart, author, uh, having a good time uh, off the air, and I guess we ought to tell some of these stories on the air, but uh, Terry, so you started writing when you were 44, uh, you've done this a while now, you've got, how many books now have you written, well, that are, have been published? I, I, think, I think this last one made number 39. Wow. Um, at 38 or 39, and I apologize, things are getting fuzzy, but... Um, so you're, you're not, like you said, you're to, never going to have writer's block, apparently. No. No, um, my, uh, we're, we're all ahead full. Um, we're producing, I'm writing three right now, and I write a lot of short fiction, too, on the side. I, I mm -hmm. was very fortunate to get with Chris Kennedy Publishing. He uh, is the creator of the Four Horsemen universe. And, which is military sci-fi that is just fantastic. And mm -hmm. so occasionally I show up there and write stories for them, and then I write a little bit of romance on the side. Well, that's all right. Um, you know, you want to try the, things, right? Well, I, I started compiling these ideas for romance, and this goes back to the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s. I was such a fast, compulsive reader that my mom would let me read her romances. And so mm -hmm. I said, well... I think if we brought some of these ideas to a modern concept, and so I write short, occasional uh, for anthologies. Sure, well, that's how it starts. Then we'll see what happens. Sure. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yep. It's going to be the Terry Maggart soap opera series. You never know what'll happen. Oh, I'd love to. I would write a telenovela without any hesitation. So we had asked you how many how many things are in the hopper. You got three in the works, but how many more? You know, in your head, another two hundred or. <laughs> I, well, we're with Amazon now. We've got three series, uh, three more series. Um, I think one will be six, one will be eight, and one will be ten. Um, okay. Those have, are. Have those you are written done. a book that you thought was a book and then became a series, or did you already know it was sort of a absolutely okay? Yep okay. that that one was the the, the surprising heartborn. I thought it was going to be the way I pitched it to myself was the sixth sense meets dystopian angels. And okay. I just, I had it as a, I actually had a dream. And I got up and started making notes. And I thought, 70,000 words and this is done. And it was <laughs> not done. Um, and that one got away from me a little bit. So Yeah, that one, that sounds out there. Yeah, uh, well, I like the idea. I, I had never, the, the main character um, has a medical disability. And I didn't, and the best compliment I think I've ever gotten as a writer was my, one of my business associates, she runs her own company advertising audiobooks, and she's built this from the ground up, and she lives with a disability, and she read it, and she said, thank you for not making her made of glass. And I think that was when I knew that I was hitting the right notes with it because I, I wanted to be careful that I handled, uh, her name is Livy, the character, and that I handled right. Livy properly and created a three-dimensional living person not a medical condition and, and once 
the audience started to resonate. I thought, okay, I've done, I've done my job. Okay, I got you. So, what's the future looking like for you? Uh, is it more co-writing with Cheney? Is it, is it you kind of each do your own thing as well? I'm assuming there's nothing that says, hey, we have to do everything together. Yeah. No, Jeff and I are both. Um, the good part about this is that we're fully invested, fifty-fifty, and uh, Jeff has. He's working on his magnum opus. It's something he's loved since he was a kid. This big roamy space opera series but between the two of us we have 30 or 40 books planned um wow. and and of course and what we do is sort of as a palate cleanser we work on our own stuff now and then and publish under our own names right so you have 39 ish let's just ballpark um any dreams of some of these becoming screenplays and things like that and you know everybody wants to be a george lucas one day i would imagine but <laughs> yeah uh yes to be that I I want to make sure I say this the right way but I write in a very cinematic way because I'm a child of the 80s mm -hmm. um, I think that that Im influenced and also the things that I loved like you know I my favorite horror film is is alien mm -hmm. and alien is for like the things that I have fallen in love with culturally are very uh, vignette assembled scene to scene and that's kind of how I write it isn't that I'm that smart it's just that I think I was designed that way by my upbringing so and adapting so, yeah, it to uh, goal is, adapting it to a screenplay is not uh, wouldn't be completely foreign to you I would imagine no I, it, it wouldn't be and all but there are far better writers for that kind of thing for me but I do write characters that are I tend to write characters who you would strike you as being more real mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. even though they're in science fiction and everything and i think that's because of growing up um in sure. the age of sitcoms um yeah. possibly you know the problems were always solved in 30 minutes but you did have every archetype represented on screen at the same time and um family ties and etc and so, so i sort of identify with that so those things influenced you uh television as well as movie as well as books or what was it about sci-fi sure. that that intrigued you the most um when i was this is actually i can point directly to it um in 1976 there was a collection of short stories called science fiction tales mm -hmm. um and in it was a story called the littlest dragon boy by ann mccaffrey and so that year, I got that Anne McCaffrey story, and then I got The Old Man in the Sea by Hemingway. Yeah. And then I got John Carter of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. And those three titles set my path as surely as if I was raising sails on a ship. I, I look back now, and I realize I was never the same after reading them. Isn't that interesting, uh, the, yeah. the different influences and the combination? Three things completely unrelated. <laughs> Yeah, um, well, you know, we're, we were talking off air about your history in radio, and mm -hmm. I remember, you know, I lived through the era of the super DJ with Wolfman Jack and oh, people yeah. like that, and Rick Dees, and, yep. and I remember radio being uh, so utterly, it just filled our existence. Like, I spent many days trying to tape with a cassette certain songs that I loved off the radio, and hope that the DJ didn't keep talking. Yeah, and, and listening from existence. far away was amazing. I mean, I would listen to WSM up in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and people down here and in Florida would listen to WoWo in Fort Wayne, which is where yeah, I was from. I, I would lay, I had an AM radio that I tilted on its side, 
after my dad told me to go to bed, and I lived in upstate New York. This is 200 miles north of New York City, and I would listen to the Braves games mm-hmm. um, out of Atlanta, and I could only get them at certain times of night because of the, the reception. WSB, and, yeah. Yep, yep. Yeah. And it was from seventy from nineteen eighty on. I would I would I was obsessed with the Braves and um, I would listen to them and it was almost like magic that I oh, could no. hear people. Yeah. Sh- the crowds were so small you could hear people shuffling around in the stands. And that was almost was sci-fi like to us. Uh, I remember listening yeah. to S- Spider Harrison at WLAC in Nashville, up oh in Indiana, gosh. under my under my pillow at night on a transistor radio. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 So all of these things, uh, you know, can influence a kid. And here, you know, f- not 44 years later, but 30 years later, you started actually uh, writing these things down. Tell us, uh, for those who haven't heard of you and, and love to read, uh, where can they find out about you and look at some of your, your books? And, uh, you know, like you said, there's a lot more to it. There's covers and there's audiobooks and all of these things that are available to a potential audience. We do, uh, Amazon, well, terrymaggart.com, I have my own uh, page, and um, I'm real active on social media because I, I that's my uh, palate cleanser, so to speak, when mm-hmm. I take writing breaks, that or running in my backyard. I put in a running track during quarantine, and it was a blessing and a curse. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and I'm on Amazon, Amazon obviously, um, and I'm a big proponent of audiobooks, and I'm very proud of the people that I work with and audible.com and blackstoneaudio.com. Well, it sounds like you were an favorite. early adopter of audiobooks. I I was and I think it was because of well, two things happened. I I love history and history was on recorded cassettes. You could you could check out yeah. books from the library as early as the 90s. Oh man, and is then, there anything um, better than hearing, you know, Orson Welles or Robert Mitchum or uh, people I'm just like listening to these guys going, I could listen to these dudes forever. <laughs> Well, really, the first cohesive memory I have of this is the the Moody Blues concept album that they did for War of the Worlds. Mm-hmm. And I think it was in '76 or '77. And I remember listening to it and thinking, "Wait a minute, this is what is this, what is this real?" And I, you know, it was transformative. And then I started hearing audiobooks, and I started hearing famous actors do them. And then Dick Hill, who's a super famous narrator started doing my favorite series of books, The Dragon Riders of Pern, by Anne McCaffrey, mm-hmm. and he started recording them in 1997. Right. And I was already an adult, but it, I thought, oh my goodness, this is, it's portable, and it's like meeting the characters for the first time again, and, and uh, falling in love with the world again all over. Isn't it weird? I mean, I'm actually, this is a weird story, because just last, I didn't even know I was going to talk to an author today, but uh, last night I'm looking up some stuff on Wyatt Earp, and then, uh, you know, through 10, 15, 20 minutes of just snooping around on the internet, I'm, it leads me to the movie Tombstone, one of my all-time favorites, and then the, yes. and about how Robert Mitchum, which is why I mentioned him, was the narrator toward the end of the, of the movie, and I was just listening to that voice, and I'm like, what a, you know, the perfect choice uh, yeah. for these things, the Darth Vader and uh, uh, James Earl Jones and and these things that match up and line up. And, you know, I'm sure you've probably thought about that for some of your books. It's like, oh, God, this would be great to hear this and that. Oh, you know, absolutely. there's a Davina Port. I mean, I am such a junkie for narrators because I first of all, I'm not an actor. 
and I have tremendous respect for professional actors. I don't know how they develop that thick skin, but also their skill is amazing. And I will hear performers and think they would be perfect for fill in the blank, my yeah. whatever title I have. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I identify certain people. Um, well, Tombstone, actually, a great, you know, an example of what do casting directors do? Well, who thought of casting Ch- Charlton Heston as Henry Hooker and giving oh, him three lines? And yet it's a home run, an yeah. absolute home run, that resonant presence and voice. Classic. And I thought... That's, I can yeah, even tell you the that's line. That's what I try they, to do. They got to come through us first. I mean, I still remember. Yep. He was on that uh, film he, for he, 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah. He can stay. He looks bad. We better move him. Yeah. And you can yeah. stay here as long as it's for tonight. Yeah, 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 exactly. Anyway, yeah. Um, but you know, as you were as you were going back and you were listening to those things in the seventies on cassettes or whatever, I think it was that little time where they were kind of throwing back. If you remember the original stories done on radio, um, it wasn't just reading. The first audio books had you know guys with sound effects and everything in this studio Absolutely. performing these things all at the same time, and it's just interesting how over the years all of these things have influenced you, and you're doing all this really cool high tech sort of adventure space, uh, just out there futuristic stuff. It'd be, I mean, if you want to trace the bright line between me, you can go all the way back to the Shadow and Lamont Cranston. Mm-hmm. And and uh, in the third, I think it was in the thirties where they first the full cast production yeah. of uh, the Shadow and and the brilliant actors they brought in trained stage actors who listening to them now by the way they're all available too you mm-hmm. listen to them and you think how good were they because yeah. they were doing it in one take live oh yeah. Yeah, that's the way they did yeah. it. So uh, we're yep. up against the end of the show here. Uh, Terry Maggart, we, we are glad to have you on the air. Is it is that one of the reasons, real quick, why you're you're still on the radio up in Portland then, too, right? Every now and then I get I, I go on and harass Jim Butler for an hour. Mm-hmm. We like to argue. So, <laughs> We've yeah. known each other for 15 years or so. so. You like that, that old-time, uh, you know, the, those old radio shows and, and uh, to the newest and the new, and, uh, and you're still doing a little radio here and there? That's kind of cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, we appreciate the time. We've learned an awful lot, and I hope everybody gets a chance to uh, go to terrymaggart.com, check out your books and your uh, your trilogies and your, your series and your <laughs> – I don't even know how to describe all these things you got working. <laughs> uh, books. Let's just go with books. Stories, however. <laughs> Stories, and many more to come, and uh, a very bright future, and, and good luck to you, and thanks for taking the time to uh, inform our audience and – and hopefully encourage some folks to pick up a, a few books. And make sure to keep writing. If you're doing it, don't quit. All right. Thank you very much, Terry Magger. We appreciate you joining us today. Thank you. And that's going to do it for Sumner County Spotlight for this Sunday morning. We appreciate you joining us and the sponsorship of FNM Bank at 221 Indian Lake Boulevard in Hendersonville or also at myfmbank.com. We're going to have another guest next week. We appreciate you spending the time with us. We'll talk to you next Sunday morning on WHIN for another edition of Sumner County Spotlight. Have a great week. Sumner County Spotlight has been brought to you exclusively by FNM Bank, 221 Indian Lake Boulevard in Hendersonville. Whether you need personal banking, banking for your business, or even home mortgages, FNM Bank can provide you with excellent service right here in Sumner County. Visit them today at myfmbank.com. Sumner County Spotlight will return next Sunday at 10 a.m. Thanks for listening.